Support for Inkslingers comes from the Leon Levy Center for Biography, cultivating important discussions about the art and craft of biography. Welcome to Inkslingers. I'm Jenny Skoog. Today's guest is Professor Brenda Wineapple. Brenda Wineapple is a historian and award-winning biographer who's received numerous honors. She's previously served as executive director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography at CUNY's Graduate Center, where she's a visiting professor in the MA program for Biography and Memoir. Wineapple lives in New York City with her husband. Brenda Wineapple, welcome to Inkslingers. Thanks. I'd like to begin with your latest book, The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation. What, quest- what questions were you trying to answer with this book? There were two main questions, I think, that I was trying to answer in Impeachers when I started. And one was, why didn't I know anything about the first ever presidential impeachment? I mean, now we're very familiar with Uh, The idea of impeachment, there have been two impeachments uh, in the only four in American history. But when I began, which was around 2014, which is a good time ago now, seven years, we were still very much in the Obama administration. We could never have foreseen what was going to happen in the coming years. And um, I was surprised that as a fairly well-read person, I really didn't know anything about uh, such an unusual and historic event. So that was the first question that I asked, why don't I know anything about this? And obviously the second question is related to the first, more basic is what happened? And as I came to find out those two questions, what happened and why didn't I know about it? And I'm wasn't an anomaly. I mean, when I began to talk to people, most people didn't know a thing about it themselves. And frankly, were not entirely interested. It just seemed one of those forgettable events in American history, like, I guess, very many, but um, that was, you know, just weren't worth looking at. And so this book comes out, right? And the Washington Post calls the impeachers stunningly well-timed. What was it like to do a book launch about a presidential impeachment during the impeachment of a sitting president? Well, what hadn't happened yet. The book came out in the spring of 2019. And there really wasn't, I mean, there had been talk about impeaching Donald Trump. um, But I mean, I think it was in, I think it was serious talk, but there were no occasions for doing it. And it was a reach and a very extreme response, albeit to an extreme administration. So when the book first came out, there was a kind of sense of, um, well, yeah, well-timed given the times, um, but as I tried to explain to people, this had nothing to do with Donald Trump. I didn't write it about Trump. I didn't begin it in the Trump administration. And you know, frankly, I went out of my way not to mention 
either the impeachment of Bill Clinton or the near impeachment of Richard Nixon. Um, that wasn't what I was interested in. And only in the epilogue in about a couple of sentences, I explained why the Andrew Johnson impeachment was different. However, once the book is launched, then all of a sudden, um, as a friend of mine said that I must be a witch uh, to have <laughs> conjured this, uh, a stream of events and I had I said to her if I were a witch I would then determine the outcome of the presidential <laughs> impeachment I wouldn't just let it go at that you know I'm interested in selling books but there's more to the issue it seems to me so the impeachers comes after the publication of your book ecstatic nation confidence crisis and compromise 1848 to 1877 the boston globe said that this book provided the smell and feel of the era and you sort of have a knack for bringing the past to vivid life on the page what are some of the tools that you incorporate to make this happen well you know in one very um almost mystical and i'm certainly not a mystic uh, mystical sense, I really try to inhabit the past. I try to get there. I try to make it come alive to me. And there are several strategies for doing that, that um, if it works for me or if other people say it works, I'm glad. But one of the things that I do, I'm very um, adamant about this. I look at as many primary sources as possible. And what I mean by that is that if I'm dealing with people, then I want to hear their voices. So if they have letters or diaries or other, um, you know, or, or there are other uh, places where I can hear what, you know, not literally what they sounded like, but hear the, the way they use language, syntax, the kinds of metaphors they use, you know, the rhythms in their speech, um, then they become more alive for me. and. For me as a writer, I need them to be alive in order for me to make them or to try to make them come alive in the page. At the same time, I use a lot of other kinds of sort of primary sources. They're not entirely primary, but they would be newspapers, newspapers and magazines of the time, even novels of the time, so that you can get a sense of how people, um, how they got from one place to another. What modes of transportation did they take? How did they see the roads? What was the foliage like? What was the weather like? You can get that you know, in some of the uh, newspaper accounts. Um, details that you wouldn't find any other place, it seems to me. And then you can begin to create a kind of collage of people, places, and events that seem vivid because uh, it's important to me to know what the streets smelled like. I mean, they didn't smell the same way they do today. Today, perhaps, they if the garbage hasn't been picked up, they'll be uh, a little um, uh, a little fragrant in one way. But in the in the nineteenth century, say, if the horse manure wasn't cleaned up, then they would be fragrant in a whole other way. You know, things like that, things that occurred to me. How did the mail come? How often did it come? How many newspapers there were? So that you get a sense of what life was like uh, on the ground floor. And that's where I generally start. And that becomes very important to me so that I can uh, feel like I've entered a room that's furnished. 
relationships. Much of your work centers around relationships between two or more people. Like, for instance, you write about the brother-sister collaboration between Gertrude and Leo Stein, or you reveal Walt Whitman through the conversations of Horace Traubel. It's really, um, in that little book, it's a, it's a series of um, uh, excerpts from uh, Traubel's um, almost uh, literal a transcription of what Whitman was saying. So I, I didn't really, to be precise, um, give you a sense of conversation because there's no trouble in that book. It's all Whitman. I mean, it's a very small book and um, it and it sounds like Whitman. So uh, trouble is really an invisible presence. He is a, he is a phone recording. He's a recording device. Um, he's a tape recorder, he's a stenographer, whatever you want to call him. Um, and Whitman was, I think, probably one of the most garrulous people you'd ever want to meet. And he not only loved talking, he he loved airing all of his views. So I wouldn't say that's really so much of a relationship, except that it's a relationship between Whitman and the world, which is so wonderful about Whitman. Um, but yes, the relationship between um, Gertrude Stein and her brother Leo really was, yes, it's, it's about a sister brother. It's about a sibling relationship. It's also about the creation of, um, uh, of a group of works of art. And together they collaborated on that group of art and artists, a group of artists and art. Um, and when, when they no longer spoke, which was an interesting facet of their relationship because when they, they basically lived together for 40 years and then afterwards never spoke to one another again. So it's a rather stunning relationship, but they never collected art in the same way independently. They just, it was very interesting that what they could do together, they could not do apart. Yeah, and then you also look at the the friendship between Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson. So what is, about, what is it about these relationships that inspire you to write about them? Well, I can see from the outside how you would see me as writing about those relationships, but it didn't really come out that, I mean, start that way, as I said, with Gertrude Stein and her brother Leo, um, uh, that book started with a, a, an offhand remark by somebody I was interviewing for a different subject. And she had said to me that you could never mention Leo's name um, the, in front of Alice Toklas or Gertrude, I guess, for that matter. And I thought, whoa, that is really interesting. How is it that you never could even mention the person's name? What is that about? So as in the case of the impeachers, it's not so much the relationship. The, I begin with a question, and, and that's what's key to me. Similarly, in, in the book about um, the friendship between Thomas Wentworth Higginson and Emily Dickinson, um, one of the questions I began with in that particular case, a couple of questions, but one significant one was if we admire and Emily Dickinson, and I do, and people <clears throat> who care about poetry or literature definitely do, why is it that we do not 
we're not interested in, we don't admire, we make fun of her choice of friend, Thomas White Wentworth Higginson, when in fact she didn't want to be friends with most people. So she chose him and I thought, isn't that interesting? And why is it that he too has disappeared? What's that about? So I guess you could say disappearance is more uh, <clears throat> something that intrigues me. The disappearance of the impeachment trial, the disappearance for literary people, not for historians, but the disappearance of Thomas Wentworth Higgins and the disappearance of Leo Stein, and really, in a sense, that art collection of that abilities. Many of your subjects are 19th century American writers. So what can we learn from reading their words today? We can learn everything. They're speaking directly to us, you know, it seems to me. I mean, you mentioned yourself, <clears throat> Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, or say Mark Twain's another one, speaks to us as if he is right there with you wherever you are, whether you're in your study, whether you're walking through the park, whether you're sitting in a closet, wherever you are, you know he's talking to you and he moves you. And it's really a remarkable thing that words can reach you across time, that the person is there and not there at the same time. So whether it's a 19th century or the 17th century, you know, um, people reading Shakespeare say, why do people read Shakespeare? Why does it matter? Um, it matters because you hear it in, in some very, very real way. Mm -hmm. And if, if and, and that's why literary figures and specifically had or have a gift of language that allows them to speak. Um, Mark Twain, I bring up because he's an interesting case. Um, to my mind, he's very funny. And I'm always amazed that in 2021, he's funny. I mean, humor doesn't date. You know, you can see an old, um, I guess, tape or something of a stand-up comic, and you know, you might cringe really. So, what makes humor last? And it's, a, and this is the larger question. And Twain is so good that he does. Um, that's why we still read him, and that's why we're still intrigued. I think. In your biography of Nathaniel Hawthorne, you reveal a complicated and shadowy American writer. What was it like to write about a somewhat unlikable character? <laughs> well, when I started, I didn't know he was going to be unlikable. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, one of the things that's interesting in both at the time, and it's certainly in retrospect, is that Hawthorne raises a question that I think we're dealing with very much today, and it is, what do you do when you admire someone's writing or their painting or their music, <coughs> excuse me, whatever it is, when in fact their capabilities as a human being are um, thwarted or dwarfed or non-existent, um, what do you do with that? What do you do? You know, the extreme example of that would be an Ezra Pound who was broadcasting his anti-Semitic and other diatribes for Mussolini radio, um, what do you do? And, and people in say the, before uh, Pound died, and people want to give him a award for this or that, you know, 
they had to confront that question. And I think we're confronting it all the time. So to go back to Hawthorne, very interesting. Um, I can still very much admire some of, or if not all of, what he was able to do uh, in terms of writing words on the page, what he was able to do in terms of creating um, really an iconic female protagonist in Hester Prynne, the really, you know, the, the standout figure in The Scarlet Letter. And she looms not only over that book, but over people's imagination. People still refer to a scarlet letter knowing what they mean. So what do you do with that when you kind of dig into him and his life and find out that he had political views that were surprising if you assume the writers who seem to have a wide, capacious, uh, moral imagination, if those writers in their daily lives or in their politics are not the same people that they appear on the page. I think it's a, an important question to confront and I think it's an interesting one. And so that's what I did. I you know, had to deal with it head on. I mean, it's not written into the book, but what that means is that I wasn't gonna sugarcoat anything. What are the qualifications for a Brenda Wineapple book? Well, I guess the first thing, I, or two things I would say off the top of my head. One, one is I have to be interested. Um, I have had, I, I can, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I, I remember a subject that I was thinking of writing about. And as I tried or as I started to research the subject, I got so depressed by the story that I just couldn't go on. I didn't even realize it, but I was depressed all the time. And as soon as I thought, I, I'm not gonna do this, I just felt liberated. So um, I'm not interested, you talk about literary figures. Yes, I've written about a number of them, I guess. Um, but I'm not interested in that per se, or if I was no longer, I'm more interested in events, as in the case of the impeachment trial, what a trial is, why the trial took place, why we didn't know about it. That to me is more significant. Um, the book's not about an Andrew Johnson, or it's not about a Charles Sumner, it's not about a Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, that's very interesting to me. Similarly in Ecstatic Nation, it was a kind of um, intellectual problem that I had to solve in that particular book. Um, so I'd have to say overall, what qualifies as a subject is a subject that interests me and that I feel will sustain me for a while and that answers a question, even if it's a simple question um, that, that bothers me. And the question, when I say simple question, may not, I don't know the answer to it. In other words, the question is, why didn't I know about the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson? Um, why did it, why didn't I know? Um, it's a simple question. It's almost like the story, I don't even know who wrote it, from childhood, um, The Princess and the Pea. And the princess 
you know, can't sleep. If there's all these mattresses, I don't even know why. Well, who put the pee in her bed? But in any event, that's another question altogether. I don't remember. I just remember there's a little teeny pee in all the mattresses in, in the world. I think it's 20 mattresses. Yeah, well, I was going to say a princess can have all the mattresses she wants. And she still couldn't sleep because of that pee. And the question is the pee. And so to whatever that is, you know, in, in the sense of, uh, partly also in, in the case of certain aspects of uh, the impeachment trial in the 19th century, um, it was, there were things that I'd been told that bothered me that didn't seem right. Sim similar with uh, Higginson and Dickinson, things I've been told that didn't seem set right. So they were the peas for me in, in some particular way. So something I think to that, uh, of that sort, I think is why most people begin to do what they do. It's almost to solve something and to bring some satisfaction and perhaps peace of mind uh, to, to yourself. But by no means um, am I completely wedded to the 19th century. Um, I've dealt a lot with, especially the early part of the 20th century, which also intrigues me. What brought you to the craft of biography? Oh, well, um, what brought me to the craft of biography was something years ago, and it didn't sustain me, by the way, but that's a different issue. Years ago, um, I, for several reasons, um, it was suggested to me that I go down to the Library of Congress, which I did, and look at the papers of a writer named Janet Flanner, and um, who had written for 50 years for the New Yorker before her death. And uh, so I went and the papers were hardly cataloged at that time, it's just big boxes of stuff. And I began looking through them and I thought, this is really interesting. One, one aspect and reason I was looking in part was that Flanders seemed to me an uncategorizable writer. First of all, she was interesting. She's a woman, so I'm interested right off the bat. Second of all, she seemed very uncategorizable. I mean, what is she, nonfiction writer? What is that? She's journalist. She didn't like call, being called a journalist. She's an essayist, you know, whatever. So those are interesting sort of dilemmas to confront. But I saw the papers. I thought these are remarkable. And this perhaps goes back to your question of relationships, but certainly to me of friendships. And I thought there are amazing women here who are friends with one another and sustain each other for their lives. Whatever happens, whoever they're involved with, whatever their uh, anger or animosity or envy or different places or whatever they confront, they stay um, committed. And I thought, that's a really great story. What's the best way that I can tell that story? And I thought, well, biography might be the way to tell that story. Because through uh, a kind of story of the life of Jenna Flanner, I could then tell the story of these other people and their relationships. So that's what drew me initially. And then I stayed <clears throat> long enough. I didn't think of Sister Brother as a biography, um, although it drew on that. And then, and then the Hawthorne was the only, to my mind, um, uh, sort of real old fashioned biography in a sense that, and I wanted to undertake it 
because I thought it'd be interesting for a woman to write about a man who wrote of such an interesting woman. Well, more than one actually, but certainly Hester Prynne. And then, and then I found I found the form very limiting. Ooh, in what way? Always, it seemed um, it seemed very narrow. It seemed um, too focused on one person at the exclusion of many other questions that need to be asked. I mean, initially I was drawn because of the interdisciplinary nature of it that, you know, you need to know <clears throat> about, if you're writing, say about Hawthorne, then you discover one of his dearest friends is the president of the United States. And once you discover that, you think, hmm, that's very interesting. What are the politics? What are Hawthorne's politics? Questions that I don't think many people were interested in for a long time and what's that relationship like and then I become very interested in the politics of the time and that gets really in some ways outside of the purview of the limits of biography I'm not uninterested in biographical narrative but not biography itself or you know the sort of narrowness I consider what I consider the narrowness of that genre in most hands. So as a professor at CUNY Graduate Center's um, master's program for biography and memoir, what advice do you give your students, like myself, who are new to the craft of biography? Read, 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 read. Read, 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 read. And and while you're reading, um, while you're reading, I think the most exciting thing to determine is what works what doesn't work, what works for you, what works in the world, what books seem to have a kind of respect for their subject, because in the case of biography, you are dealing, although you could make a similar kind of argument in a different way, but you are dealing with human beings. So how can you be fair to human beings without being um, subject to them? But beyond that, I think that one of the things that needs to be emphasized a lot is not just the form, but the actual craft and pay attention to that when it is you're reading. So read, 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 read and figure out what different people are doing and how they're doing it and why some succeed and ones don't. Because if you think about it, you know, biographies, most of them are either or most of them are forgotten and for good reason. Can you share with me your favorite biography of all time? Is there one? I don't really think there is one favorite of all time. I, I, I would share it if something immediately popped into my head, but no, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. And it, I'm afraid to, you know, to say X and then I would leave out Y. No, no, I mean, I just, no, I, you know, I could tell you novels I love or poetry that I love, but biographies, you know, by and large, I'd have to say they don't occupy that same place. Hmm. Um, and that's because so many of them just aren't well done, it seems to me. So, and then it becomes very personal. So do you start writing as you're doing your research? And then beyond that, are you a seven days a week writer? 
in terms of the relationship between research and writing, it's always a kind of delicate balance. Um, I need to, for myself, to, to know enough about all the things that I told you, um, especially whatever I'm dealing with, whether it's with politics or the past or you know, the way people dressed, all of those things, I need to feel comfortable enough with the world that I've entered, even if the world was the world of yesterday. Um, so that entails research. I need to know what people sounded like, what the, what the newspaper felt like, or what, what the articles were. Um, but your research is never done exactly. So at some point, I want to respond to what it is that I'm taking in. So I begin to write. And so then I'm writing at the same time as researching. And that is something that's always, as I said, it, it's a balance and for each person, but also for each subject, it's gonna be very different. Um, and um, so I, I do one and then I do both, but, and then, and then, and then the, with revisions, which I do a number of revisions that's generally without research, unless I find there are holes and there very well might be holes, you know, sort of conceptual or, you know, other kinds of holes. So that is overall how I would work. Um, the other, and in terms of actual working seven days a week, yeah, that's the goal. I'm a sort of obsessive person. It's very difficult if I'm teaching a course um, so the day I am teaching, uh, generally I can't work on my own stuff because I'm thinking about the class, the people in the class, what it is we're going to be reading, how the discussion is going to go, things of that nature. So, um, so, so like anybody who works in a different job, that too is a balancing act, but as I said, I'm pretty obsessive. In other words, I'm not going to say, oh, it's Friday. So, you know, time to uncork the wine and, you know, drink until Monday morning. If only, <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. I'll work all the time. Huh. And you're working all the time when you think you're not because your mind is going over things. You know, why did this or did I do that? Or hmm, maybe he meant this when he said that or maybe that. Can you share with me what you're working on next? Sure. I'm working on a book about the Scopes trial, which Ooh. took place in 1925. Yeah. Oh. Very different, very different trial for sure, but a trial nonetheless in Dayton, Tennessee, 1925, a big media circus. So, um, you know, very different than the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson, because this was well covered and well known It's kind of entered the sort of popular culture where the other didn't at all. So you've had an incredible career. You've published nine books, countless op-eds, op essays, reviews. Um, you're a talking head when major networks need a reliable expert. You've received numerous awards and fellowships. You're an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and more. How have you done it? <laughs> by being obsessive, Jenny, just as I said, by, <clears throat> you know, share, um, I don't know, share something, will, I suppose, um, and luck, one has to be lucky, and, you know, luck is a big part of life, 
in that particular sense. So I've been lucky in many, many ways. And, um, and just by, by working, I remember, I remember it's very moving to me. My friend, Richard Howard, um, the poet, wonderful poet, wonderful human being. Um, after my second book came out, Sister Brother, and uh, I forget, there was one review that broke my heart, and that happens all the time. And I remember having lunch with Richard, you know, and, and tearfully I said, <clears throat> what should I do, you know? And he said, keep writing. And it was such wonderful advice, you know, and he basically said, keep at it. So um, if, I've, if I've achieved anything, it's only by not giving up. It's sort of also the other thing was I learned um, through Gertrude Stein too, is she was, you know, nobody could be as, as uh, parodied, satirized, you know, made fun of, called all kinds of names and she believed in what she was doing and like it or not like her or not she kept doing it and you think oh that's something mm -hmm. that's an that's that can be stubbornness for sure but i'm not talking about that side of it that that also can be something that's uh, encouraging you know so mm -hmm. that you don't you, you don't get discouraged. I always tell my writing students because I teach an MFA program and um, I always tell them, you know, you can't be a writer if you can't take rejection. Would you ever write a memoir? I don't think so. I, I tried a little bit and then I stopped. I've, I'm, I'm very, um, what's the word? I, I admire enormously people who can do that um, and not be swamped by the feelings that are unleashed. But I'm not a first person kind of person. What do you do for self-care? <laughs> well, I need a haircut. I mean, you know, <laughs> that I guess that's coming, <laughs> you know, and really speaking to you, I really need exercise, more exercise, if anything, that I miss enormously because I was a gym rat and I miss that. I'm, I haven't gone back. I'm just too paranoid, even though, you know, presumably it's safer and I'm slightly bulletproof, I'm told. But, you know, um, so <clears throat> I don't, I, you know, so those are the things that I do. And also, I absolutely love, uh, noir and not noir reading and not mystery book not books but i i watch you know dark scandinavian series about icy cold miserable situations where there's some kind of horrible mystery that occurred and i find them very relaxing and distracting so once i get a haircut and get back to the gym Maybe I'll, you know, even go to Scandinavia. Who knows? Well, Professor Wineapple, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jenny. <laughs> We'd like to thank Brenda Wineapple for being on the podcast. You can find Brenda on her website at brendawineapple.com. Do you have a question, comment, or want to suggest someone for a future episode? 
Tweet us at Inkslingers2 or email us at inkslingerspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram to see photos of today's guest, and don't forget to visit our website at inkslingerspodcast.com. Inkslingers is written and produced by Jenny Skoog and Sierra Holt. Help with sound design and editing comes from Eric Farley. Special thanks to the Leon Levy Center for Biography for their support. Our music is dubbed Feral by Kevin McLeod. Thank you.